What is it about the wilderness that can inspire our creativity? Coming up, Dan Richards tells us how he followed the adventures of artists and explorers to historic outposts that you can camp at around the world. But they still retain the foundations and the story and the myth and the ghosts of all of these different incarnations and all of the travelers who've passed through them. Mount Everest climbers often trained on the highest mountain in Wales. We'll hear how today Snowdonia National Park offers scenic excursions for hikers and day trippers. The sea is there, the lakes, heavily glaciated landscape, deep, steep, narrow valleys, little streams that run down them. And we'll look at the landscape of Slovenia as an ideal nature lover's destination, even if you just like to take it easy. And it's an area that has rolling hills, looks like Tuscany, beautiful nature, amazing food and amazing wine. Let's get away for the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. They can shelter you from the elements, provide a refuge for your creativity, and even hide you from the rest of the world. In just a bit, we'll look at the role played by the remote outposts that Dan Richards explored in the faraway corners of the world. And we'll hear how the small, off-the-radar Balkan country of Slovenia offers plenty of outdoor enjoyment. That's all coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a peek at the natural appeal of the largest national park in Wales, Snowdonia. The highest peak in Wales, in fact, the highest peak in England and Wales, is called Snowdon. It sits in the heart of the Snowdonia region, and it's in one of Britain's first national parks. These Welsh highlands offer outdoor adventures, a gorgeous backdrop, and draw countless tourists each year. Welsh guide Martin Delandovitz is here to help us make the most of our time in Snowdonia. Martin, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me here, Rick. So, I've been to your home. Snowdon is right in the backyard. You grew up there in northern Wales. What does Mount Snowdon and Snowdonia National Park mean to you? It's a place I tend to walk quite a lot. It's just a huge and beautiful area. When I say huge, it's not massive, 827 square miles, but you're not going to see that many people in it. It feels massive because it's it's windy, it's dark, it's pristine, Yeah, small roads, yes. not a lot of crowds. How tall is Mount Snowden? It's the massive height of 3,650 feet above sea level at its peak, but because it rises more or less out of the sea, yeah. it has the aspect of bigness about it. It's so interesting because here on the west coast of the United States, 3,500 feet, it's like, that's a sort of a medium mountain pass. Yes. But for Britain, that's a big peak. That's, I mean, you know, Ben Nevis is the highest one in Britain, and mm-hmm. there are a few mountains over 4,000, but in the Snowdonia National Park, you have all of Wales's peaks over 3,000 feet high, and there's only, I think there's only one peak in England that's over 3,000 feet okay. high. And this is the north of Wales. You know, I've traveled on Wales a fair bit, and I just, if you got limited time, I would recommend the north. The peak's only uh, less than 4,000 feet, but didn't um, the uh, British um, climbers of Mount Everest actually practice in the Snowdon area? They practiced in that nobody had ever used oxygen on a mountain before, and so they had a stroll round. They had uh, two systems, an open and a closed, and they thought, oh, the closed system is much better 
better. But what they didn't realize when they got onto Everest, uh, the valves on the closed system froze. So they, they Luckily, they had a couple of open systems with them. But they had some rugged enough areas on, yeah. in North Wales where they thought they could have some uh, practice there. And you do get to some mountain, they're not resorts, they're sort of hiking centers or something. Yeah. There's some beautiful towns. Uh, there's a town called Bethgelert. Bethgelert, yes. Describe Bethgelert. Well, it's a mountainous area, mm-hmm. and therefore towns, villages, they nestle in the valleys. They don't sit on tops of hills. And Beth Gellert, which means Gellert's grave, uh-huh. is uh, beautiful in a little bowl with rivers running through it. Stone buildings. Oh, yes. Everything is built of stone. Right. Everything right. is built of stone. Stone bridges over the babbling stone brook. Stone bridges and, of course, slate roofs, because Wales used to be the slate production center of the world at one time. That's right. So when we think about going to North Wales as a visitor and we want to do some hikes, what advice would you give for enjoying the nature of Snowdon National Park and uh, burning off some calories at the same time? You can hike at all levels. Mount Snowdon itself, Erwidva as it is in, in Welsh, is an attraction. Mm-hmm. And there's a railway that runs up it. So if you don't want to walk for three hours, just take the train. And this is kind of a cute little tourist steam train. Yeah. It goes from Clanberis. Clanberis up to the, the top. And that's a family day out. It is. It's, yes. it's, it gets crowded in the summer. But mm-hmm. what I was going to say is that Snowdon is like a magnet. People have heard of it. People mm-hmm. go there. So that 827 square miles, so get away from Snowdon, you'll see fewer and fewer mm-hmm. people, which is a lovely thing. It is a very empty area. It is. And if you wanted to have some rugged memory... You could hike it without the, the steam train. It would take, what, five hours or something? No, three hours up. Well, five hours up and down if you uh-huh. fit. You know, yes. but it's, uh, so it's a nice day. It's a lovely day. Beware, and I, I say this flat out, beware of times of year like Easter right. when it's considerably cooler at the top. Dress well. Okay. Archaeologist Martin Delandovitz is our guide right now on Travel with Rick Steves to Mount Snowdon and Snowdonia National Park. It's near where he makes his home in northern Wales. When we're enjoying the great nature anywhere in Britain, if you want to experience the industrial age slate industry, the heritage in Wales, what are your suggestions? I would suggest in Llanberis itself. Now, we said that mm-hmm. the mountain railway goes up from there. In Llanberis, you have part of the National Museum of Wales, the Slate Museum of the North. There is no charge to go in. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's fascinating. I go there myself. I dropped in. It's very well done. It is well done. But it's, it's a museum, and it's, it duplicates or replicates some sort of um, slices of life from those days. But you can actually go into a mine, and you can take the lifts down, and you can have yes. that experience. What would you recommend if you want to actually put on a hard hat and, and do go that. in. I would go to Blena Fistiniog. Blena Fistiniog. Blena Fistiniog. Okay. <laughs> well, I know this is just my. So, but, well, Fistiniog starts with two F's. Yes. FF. And then Chlechwed starts with two L's. And when you have L is pronounced L, but two L's are pronounced S. L. Okay. So that's BF. That's the initials of the town's name. And when you see that, you know that's the quintessential slate mining town. Yeah. What, just out, outside of town, there's the, the Chlechwed mine? Uh, from, let's say, Llanberis, the Chlechwed is about, oh, I'd say, comfortable drive on the wrong side of the road, that is. <laughs> it's about an hour's drive, okay. maybe 45 minutes. And then if, when you're going to tour a mine, what does that entail? You go in, you're told the history of the mine, you see how it worked, 
and then people will demonstrate slate splitting too. You have to understand that everybody in the region was employed in the slate industry virtually. And they uh, can split that slate. It's just like incredible. They'll make shingles out oh of yeah, a big block of slate. Just bam. Old, bam, old bam. seam, you can get it down to a sixteenth of an inch and even less. A sixteenth of an inch. Yeah, yeah. As a traveler, a real fun part of visiting Northern Wales is, is to, to hear the, the choirs in action. Yes. And um, I understand a lot of towns, they have a, a practice the same day every week, yeah. and, and tourists are actually welcome? Usually it's Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek, uh-huh. and uh, you go along, you make a little contribution, why wouldn't you? Sure. It's like the practice for everything. It's almost more interesting than the event so, itself. It's so convivial, it's oh. so rich in culture. And then afterwards... They're done singing. What do they do? They all go over to the bar and they sing some more. They sing better <laughs> with lubricated voices. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. And as a traveler, you become a temporary Welsh person and you join them. Buy them a few beers and you're part of the family. Absolutely. It's a this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Delendovitz from Northern Wales. And we're talking about Snowdon in the area around Northern Wales where you've got the slate culture, you've got the tallest mountain in Wales, and you've got plenty of opportunities to enjoy it as a traveler. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com, and BJ in Mackinac, Illinois, has emailed us, and uh, Martin, BJ writes, with a limited time for our first trip to the U.K., our family of four, which includes two teenagers, can't hit every park to the extent that we'd like. Should we see Snowdonia instead of Dartmoor? Yorkshire Dales, or the Lake District? Ha! Huh. And should we climb Snowdon or Ben Nevis? Well, Snowdon's the tallest mountain in Wales. Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in, in, Scotland, yeah, in yeah. Scotland. First of all, Dartmoor and Yorkshire Dales are kind of... Dart- Dartmoor is, let's say, it's not as elevated, and the Yorkshire Dales are beautiful, rolling. It's rolling, it's, it's, it's mellow, lovely. it's... it's it's sort of remote, unused, flat, uh, rolling hills. Kind it's, of. it's it's farmland mostly, but it's just it's just. But uh, if you want more, beautiful. if you want more hardcore nature, I think I would recommend Lake District or Snowdonia. Okay, it's me. I'd recommend Snowdonia over the Lake District. Lake District is more rounded. Snowdonia true. is yeah. more jagged. I love Scotland. Ben Nevis is 4,406 feet. So that's another 1,000 feet or whatever mm-hmm. stuck on. And because it's so much further north, it can get much colder. Yeah. And yeah. you have to be aware of that. You have to remember the latitude uh, factors you in do. there. Uh, but BJ is talking about the Lake District. That's the Cumbrian Lake District. That's true. You've got to, the, to me the south and the north. The south to me is more touristy. I, I love settling down in the north. Mm. Sake, and there's plenty of hikes there. But a great thing about Wales is all the castles. Yes. You can't go to North Wales without being just wonderstruck by yes. the castles. Tell us just briefly, as we visit Snowdon and we drive there and we explore around, we're going to see castles. Uh, who built them and why? Well, there are two sets, if you like, of castles in North Wales. One set was built by the Princes of Gwynedd. Do you understand? That's the area in which Snowdonia finds itself. Now, if you're trying to attack them, you have to, because it's a mountainous landscape, you have to come along mountain valleys. And so to defend their homeland they built their castles in the valleys. However, Gwynedd was conquered by Edward I in the 1280s, Longshanks of brave heart fame, so beautifully played by Patrick McGowan. But he wasn't interested in the valleys. He wanted to be able to get to his castles, build his castles, which are the most expensive set of wonderful castles you've ever seen. But his castles are on the edge of the sea, so he could access, bring building materials by sea... Mm. So the castles that I'm thinking of in Wales are these big, dramatic, state-of-the-art in the 13th century castles. They would be English castles built yes. to keep the indigenous Welsh people down. Yeah. 
and they would be accessible by sea, sea that's because that's what you could. You don't need to control the countryside. You just didn't have these toeholds accessed by sea, and then you can administer your empire. I mean, you've been there, Rick. You know that there's a very narrow coastal strip with mountains on the inside. So, right. if you're going to move in Gwynedd in North Wales, you're going to move either along the coastal strip. Uh-huh. Or through the valleys. Well, if you build castles at the mouths of rivers on the seashore, you've got the landscape tied up. You bottle up the country. King Edward, he had his castles there. And what are the top three or four castles that the English Carnarvon, Conwy, Bumaris. I'd say those are the top three. Harlech is one. Harlech is beautiful. Gorgeous castles. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Martin Delandovitz, a guide from Northern Wales. We've been talking about Snowdon National Park and the cultural and historic wonders nearby. Martin, thanks so much for joining us, and I'd like to just close with a, a moment with you. You and I have just spent three just exhilarating hours. We didn't take the steam train, we climbed. And yes. it's a beautiful day. We got yes. to the top of Mount Snowden. You, as a Welshman, tell me, what do you see and, and what do you think? It's a, the, the view from the top is stunning. You can see Ireland from the top of Snowden. You can see the Island Man from the top of Snowden. The sea is there, the lakes... Heavily glaciated landscape, deep, steep, narrow valleys, little streams that run down them, and a very green countryside. It's not by accident that Tom Jones sang of the green, green grass of home. It does rain a bit, but you know, it's worth putting on a coat to go out into the beauties of Snowdonia. And at that moment, you're in the top of Wales, literally. Top of Wales. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. In just a bit, we'll explore the outdoorsy appeal of the laid-back former Yugoslav nation of Slovenia, where they'll be celebrating 30 years of independence later this year. But first, British travel writer Dan Richards looks at the small outposts you can find scattered around some of the wildest places on Earth. It's Travel with Rick Steves. As a kid, Dan Richards climbed trees and built forts in the countryside of western England. Since then, his enthusiasm for adventure has taken him to untamed landscapes around the world. Some even come with a place to stay and a breathtaking view. For his book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth, Dan explored the huts, cabins, and refuges that have sheltered wilderness adventurers for decades. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take us to these secret worlds that you won't find on Airbnb. Dan, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. You mentioned in your book that it all started with a polar bear pelvis that sat on your father's desk. <laughs> Can you explain that? Just before I was born, my dad came back from an expedition uh, that he had done to Svalbard in the high Arctic. When he was younger, he was a mountaineer and also a bit of an explorer. And he went to this, you know, the most northerly human permanent settlement on Earth, which is called Neolicent, as part of a sort of geology expedition. And when he came home... Uh, he unpacked his bag and he had this most amazing, almost alien artifact, which was this polar bear pelvis, uh, very old when he found it. So, you know, he never sort of met the bear uh, involved, but he found this kind of bony frame and brought it home. And as you say, it kind of existed as this incredible object in his study. So there's the polar bear pelvis and then a photograph of your dad in Svalbard. Yes, and he'd stayed with his team um, in a number of sheds up there, just very, very um, rudimentary, very fragile little buildings where they had stayed for a night or two. So when your school friends are going to Mallorca for their summer break, you decide to go to Svalbard and find that shed. (laughs) Tell us about how you got into 
going to these remote outposts because you've gone to these places all over the world. Well, in light of my dad's trip, I began to think about these outposts as witness, in a way, to amazing adventures and travels that people had had over centuries, really. And often the people are gone, and the only thing that remains is their jumping-off point. And that could be a base like Scott's Base in Antarctica, or it could be a beacon like a lighthouse, or a fire-watching cabin. And perhaps these places are now out of use, but they still exist as these kind of amazing survivors and memorials to things that went on and I began thinking about that and also mm. the way that often creative people will try and make a shed or a spartan space either in their house or in their garden in a way to try and sort of interact with the muses or just mm. create enough kind of clear space to think and create so um, I began to combine those. That is so important. I just love going to the the remote fjords on the west coast of Norway and finding the little tiny cabin where Edvard Grieg, the great Norwegian composer, would work. And you can see the simple piano he composed on, and you can look out the window and, and see the solitude and the pristine nature and the vastness of it all that inspired him. And you can imagine yeah. that solitude was his muse. Absolutely. I think a lot of the places that I visited were like that. They had just enough architecture to make some difference so you weren't completely outside. Mm -hmm. um, and Thoreau has that line where his Walden Pond hut, he was caged amongst birds. So the birds were free and there he was with, you know, at his desk, mm. just in the nature. So I suppose venturing to these places, you would prepare yourself to know what was the purpose of this hut and, and what is the humanity of it? What was the struggle? What was the heroics of this hut? And then when you go there, it becomes a little more rewarding and a little more meaningful. Yes, absolutely. And some of them have had amazing double, triple, quadruple lives. So there were sail house that I visited in Iceland. And these are buildings that are incredibly rudimentary at the start. And they were built by the early Norse to make crossing the very barren interior of Iceland possible. So they were join-the-dots kind of stations along the way. And they started out being almost little igloos, if you can imagine an igloo mm. that was made of turf and rocks. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, they've been rebuilt so many times that now they look like what you might recognize as a sort of prairie farmstead, mm. in a way. But they still retain the foundations and the story and the myth and the ghosts of all of these different incarnations and all of the travelers who've passed through them. And I found that really fascinating. And you can hike to one of those. What was it like reaching a house of joy in the middle of Iceland? It was amazing because I think I describe it in the book as driving over this featureless... Because we were renovating it, we actually drove out. But you can imagine the Norse walking over this featureless terrain and then seeing this little hummock as it would have been in their day appearing and the house of joy you know you can imagine the joy that you know you're sleeping you have a roof tonight mm. you know you're going to be warm because mm. if you miss that if you get lost if you can't find it then you're out on a permafrosted completely barren sort of tundra so that the need to get in and get warm was immense and very kind of you know essential and elemental and when I approached um, Havatnas, which was the sail house that I visited, I describe it as a little, a little house sat up and hugging its knees. Hmm. And when you're out in this kind of an environment and you got your notepad there as a writer, all sorts of beautiful thoughts, I would think, just flutter by and you want to grab them and write them down. Absolutely. Although often I end up thinking about this in retrospect, I'll try and take a few pictures. Mm -hmm. But often when you're in these spaces, it's so important just to live in the moment. And even uh. writing something down 
you don't want to take your eyes off um, oh. what's around you. Directly in front of this sail house was the second largest glacier in Iceland. And just to look at it, it was just yeah. so, it had such charisma, this thing. You know, it, it exuded this cold, cold charisma. It was really hypnotic. You would look into these deep, deep blues, all the blues you can imagine of this, you know, elemental, incredibly old, incredibly important glacier. And then to actually take your eyes off it and write something down would almost feel like a dereliction of duty, you know, because you need to sort of soak it all up, take it all in. This is the quintessence of travel, what you're talking about. This is Travel with Rick Steves. If you ever wanted to really get away, and I mean really away, then you'll enjoy the stories of travel writer Dan Richards. His book is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And in this book, he takes us on adventures to 10 remote cabins and refuges in some of the most hostile terrain on the planet. Dan is a Royal Literary Fund Fellow at Bristol University in England. We have links to Dan's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Dan, you talk about these little huts and these sheds and whatever we call them, and they do have interesting names. In Scotland, what is it, a boothie or a bothy? A bothy, yes. Tell us about arriving at a bothy in Scotland. Well, I think the word bothy comes from, um, there are several sort of derivations, but if you can imagine a booth... It's a single room dwelling. And again, you're arriving after a hard day's slog. It's Scotland, so, you know, it rains and then it really rains. And if the sun is shining, it's probably still raining, you know. (laughs) And you'll be hiking over maybe some moorland or maybe you've come off the Cairngorm Mountains and you're just immersed in this amazing plateau of mountains and gorse and heather and moorland. And then you see on the horizon again... A little bothy, this little former crofter's hut, perhaps. A little house, a little dwelling, and you get in. And one of the most amazing things about Scottish bothies, and bothies exist all over the UK, there are some in Wales, there are some in the Lake District, you get into this very simple dwelling, and there are the marks of the people who have been there before you. And it really put me in mind, there's a wonderful poem by Philip Larkin, and the poem is called Home is So Sad. And the lines go, It stays as it was left, formed to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. I've got a cabin I rarely visit up in the mountains outside of Seattle, and it's like that. I never know who was there last, and sometimes it's been months, but you still feel the spirit of the people who were there last, and how they left it, and what they must have done, and the fun they must have had. And then you get to Absolutely. you get to take that story and carry it forward. That's it. And the carrying forward, I think, is such an amazing thing of a lot of the places I visited in the book. The Bothies and the Sail House, they are generous architecture in as much as they allow onward movement. They allow further adventures into, as you said earlier, apparently completely inhospitable terrain, but within them, hidden, are these jewel-like dwellings that allow you to spend a night in relative comfort. Um, The Scottish have a word, rough stuffing, they call it. So, you know, you don't find a bothy, you don't find a sailhouse, you end up sleeping in a relatively dry ditch with your pack as a pillow and a coat as a as a duvet or a, you know and that's rough stuffing and the alternative to that is this amazing bothy oh give me a bothy maybe, i'll take a bothy know, any day over rough absolutely stuffing. yeah so you could have a fire in a bothy you know <laughs> that's great it is kind of cool to think they're not the end of the road they are a depot on the way to somewhere in most cases absolutely yeah They're a kind of silo, I think, you know, because some people leave 
you know, you might get candles, you might get matches, you might get some food that's been left that's kind of in a tin. You might, you know, you might even get biscuits. I mean, that's real luxury out there, you know. Dan Richards documents his adventures in Outpost, a journey to the wild ends of the earth. He also co-wrote Holloway with Robert McFarlane, which we spoke about on a recent edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Dan posts to Twitter at Dan underscore Zepp. Dan, you were talking about a shepherd's hut in Switzerland. Can you describe that to us? There was a writing hut that I went to in Switzerland. There was a shepherd's hut that's in the Swiss chapter, which is uh, Roger Deakin's kind of shepherd's hut. He was an amazing nature writer from Britain. So I'm visiting his farmstead in Suffolk in this chapter. And really, I juxtaposed this very, very simple, almost little caravan that he had on wheels that he would move about his estate and he would write and there'll be a little pot-bellied stove in there and a wonderful, quite uncomfortable, horsehair mattressed bed. And you had your own little world in there. And I juxtaposed this with um, a really space-age treehouse that I visited in Switzerland, which is part of Jan Mikalski Foundation's writing. I suppose you could, it looks like a fortress, but I think really it's a kind of um, residency program. Mm. So writers can go and they're given everything that they will need to write. And one of those things is uh, solitude, but also they're given solitude also from the ground, as in they're suspended in this amazing brutalist plywood treehouse with all mod cons. You've got underfloor heating and things like that. Mm. It's the sort of thing that a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur might build in upstate New York, you know but you're in the Jura Mountains of Switzerland, and it's for writers. And it was a really interesting juxtaposition, because for one, you've got Roger Deakins' very, very Spartan space, and in the other, you've got this super high-tech, almost sci-fi Swiss little cube that's very Blade Runner. And then at the other extreme, you have, again, this just enough architecture to make you aware that you're not completely outside. So I was juxtaposing those and seeing which might be better for the creative process. And Everything. How, how was it, Dan? I'm fascinated in that because I, I can just see the rustic shepherd's hut and then I could see you in this super high-tech pod. Did you try writing and thinking and organizing your thoughts in the high-tech pod? I did, but it's strange. You know, I'm... Um, Parts of that adventure, I spent six weeks in that pod. It's exactly the right word you use. It was a pod. Mm -hmm. And the nights I loved best were the stormy nights where you'd get the snowstorm and you'd get the gales coming in right. and you would see these triple ply windows, but they would warp, you know? You'd see them almost breathing with the storm. Such was the elemental force outside. Whoa. And you would feel the whole pod begin to move on its hawsers and it felt for a moment like you were in a ship in the middle of a stormy sea. And those were the elements I liked best, where nature almost tried to get back on an even keel. Because you can be in this kind of almost hermetically sealed box, yeah. away from everything, where you can't hear the birds, where everything is automated, you know, everything is digital. But nature will always find a way. And the parts that I loved most were the stormy elements. And also, there was an amazing weekend where the pod developed several leaks. And so you could hear the dripping of water and, you know, the fusing yeah. of electricity. And there's something in me that likes the chaos of that. And uh, that's the bits I really enjoyed. So your book takes us all over the world. Uh, tell us a little bit about being at that lighthouse, that French lighthouse with centuries-old stone slowly losing its battle with the sea. This is Cordon uh, Lighthouse, which is just off the coast um, in the North Atlantic. It's quite uh, near Bordeaux. 
a lighthouse has been on this particular sandbank at the mouth of the Giron estuary, so that's the main river going into Bordeaux for centuries and centuries. And the lighthouse that's currently there, the foundations of it, the first, say, 10, 20 meters of it, go back to the 1600s. Mm. They're Palladian. They're made in the most amazing stone that often needs to be replaced. You have the most amazing carvings on it. And it's very, very Palladian and beautiful. And then above that, you have what people would generally recognize as a lighthouse. You know, you have this long tapering tower and at the top you have a lantern room. And that's where Fresnel developed and tested his amazing concentric rings of lenses. But to enter that building is incredible. You go in mm. and it feels like you're in a cathedral or a church. And the first floor is actually an apartment for the King of France. You have the most amazing classical architecture going on. The bed isn't there anymore, but you have all these busts of great statesmen. You can tell you're in an old building because France has not really had a king for a while now. That's and right. then you go above and the next floor up, you have this amazing chapel to the Virgin Mary with this coffered ceiling that's like the Pantheon in Rome. And then you go further up and all the time you're going up these little spiral staircases in stone and it feels like you're going up a belfry. You could be inside a conch shell or something really organic. And then you get up and there is another area. It's amazing. All at the same time you can be whipped by the fury of the sea all around you and you're all alone. Yes, it's incredible. I was with, on that particular occasion, a wonderful guide called Jean-Marie. And when we actually were at the top and we were in the lantern room and we were looking at the works... He was saying that he has previously been up there in a 200-mile-an-hour gale, and he couldn't feel the tower moving, though he knew that it was, because it was all relative up there. There was so yeah. much going on. But the actual movement of the light, the way that they keep that lubricated is they have it in a small pool, a bath of uh, mercury, liquid mercury. And he was suddenly aware that there were splashes of mercury on the floor around his feet. And suddenly he was aware that in this massive maelstrom, the whole stone tower was moving like an oak tree. The stories that he tells, it was incredible to be in his presence. And a lot of the time in the book, I met, unexpectedly, the most amazing people. I would go and I would try and be alone. But often there are the most amazing characters who pop up and act as my guides in this book. And I was incredibly lucky and also incredibly grateful to those people who kind of populate these unpopulated areas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dan Richards. Dan's book is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. So, Dan, all of this makes me... I find it like an amazing, vicarious adventure. Was part of your um, reason for writing this just to give people something fascinating to read about from their couch? Or did you want to inspire people not to visit these places, but just to realize that that's an option. What, what was your reason for writing the book? I had several reasons. One was to show people that these places exist. Another was to really open their eyes to the fact that a lot of the ends of the world, this idea of these wild places, they're very vulnerable, they're quite fragile. And to suggest that maybe, should you wish to visit, there are certain ways that you can do so without causing harm. The idea of leaving no trace was very important to me. And in the final chapter, when I go to Svalbard, it's a revelation to me traveling with dogs on a dog sled, how much better that is, both as an adventurer, as a traveler, both sonically, you don't have the noise of the um, snowmobile, you have the wonderful padding of the dogs, the speed is so much more animal, it's so much more human in a way. And also it gave me the opportunity to actually take in 
and really enjoy and become steeped and soak up the landscape I'd gone to see. I think so much travel these days is fast travel. You go to a place and you try and juice it for all of these experiences. And as much as anything, I think Outpost is about this idea of travelling slowly and then spending time in the place you wish to visit, not trying to wring it out as if it were a dishcloth, but to try and just, you know, be in that space and to really appreciate the world we have. Dan Richards, the book is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. It sounds like this experience for you has been good for your soul, and uh, we could all use a little bit of that. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much. We have links to Dan Richards' writing at ricksteves.com radio. Whether you like to explore mountains and caves or you prefer a stroll along a lake, I'll bet you'll enjoy the outdoors in Slovenia. Find out why next on Travel with Rick Steves. If you remember Yugoslavia, today's small country of Slovenia was the industrious northern part of that nation. It's about as big as New Jersey, but not as crowded, and rubs up against the Alps where the Slavic world meets the Latin and Germanic sides of Europe. Slovenia offers visitors an eco-friendly vibe where even the polka gets a modern twist. The lakes and mountains and smaller cities of Slovenia have been a hit with travelers who want something off the major tourist routes. It even has a small Riviera-style coastline on the Adriatic, mountain bike routes in the Julian Alps, and one of the most impressive cave systems on the planet. Here to tell us about natural Slovenia are the husband and wife tour guide team of Sasha Gulub and Tina Heat. They're based in the Lake Bled area near the border with Austria and Italy. Sasha, Tina, welcome. Thank you for having us. So a lot of people go to your corner of Europe for the history and the art and the culture, but there's so much in Slovenia that is natural, the natural mm-hmm. wonders. Talk a little bit about uh, what are the uh, attractions for a visitor to your country, Tina? Well, I would definitely say nature. It's one of the greenest countries of Europe. We have over 58% of the country still forested, and it's one of the most environmentally friendly countries. Um, it has the Alps. It has the bit of the Adriatic. It has the very rich underground world with over 10,000 caves. And there's bees everywhere. Bees everywhere? Yes. Now, the bees are probably enjoying the nature, just like a lot of yes. the Slovenes. And beekeeping is actually a big thing. Um, there's 90,000 beekeepers in a country of 2 million people. 90,000 beekeepers? Yes. And there's some culture there, too, because you've got yes. these historic beehives. I've got one hanging on my wall. Is a yes. historic uh, painting, it's, which is a, like a folk legend mm-hmm. on the front wall yes. of a beehive. Yes. Yep. So, Sasha, as a traveler enjoying some little village or some hike and you come upon a, a, a beekeeper's, uh, what, what could you experience as a traveler in Slovenia could, with bees? You could first talk about the ethnography, the history. When you look at the painted beehive panels, uh-huh. they tell a lot of stories. Some of them are realistic. Some of them just a little bit of our sense of humor, let's call it. The sort of Slovenian humor. What, it is. What, what's a, a funny panel you mm, might a see? A funny panel that is a little bit chauvinistic, but it's present is... Um, this is before Me Too. This is, be- yes, <laughs> this is way before Me Too. <laughs> 200 uh, years before Me yeah. Too. It is, um, there's a husband carrying his old wife in a woven basket on his back, uh-huh. and he's carrying her to a mill, and she would be dropped into the mill, and a new, young, fresh wife comes out the other end. Okay. They don't exist anymore, but... That would be before me, too. <laughs> that would be before, yeah. <laughs> okay. But there's all sorts, and, and honey is something that's honey very is important. A big it's like deal. medicinal. It's, it's very medicinal. Um, and it was important before there was sugar. Absolutely. I mean, it was 
it, before sugar came to our neck of the woods, honey was... So, so you're very likely to stumble onto beehive culture. You're also very likely to come upon some beautiful lakes. Mm-hmm. Sasha, what's a, what's a, uh, we have a couple of famous lakes to I see. I would say the two most famous ones are Lake Bochin and Lake uh-huh. Blit. Uh-huh. Those are also the ones that are most visited. Um, if you see one photograph of Slovenia, it's probably going to be Lake Bled, Lake Bled with the likely. island yes. and the church on the and island. And the castle in and the, the background. Yes, it. yeah, that would be sort of an iconic view of, of Slovenia, absolutely. So a visitor will see the capital, Ljubljana, mm-hmm. and then they'll go to Lake Bled, yeah. and they'll get on one of the traditional boats. Describe those boats. You would take, um, so going to the only Slovenian island, which sits on a lake, you would take uh, what we call a Pletna boat, one of the few traditions back home that are still being transferred from father to son. And this goes way back in the time of Maria Teresa. So, so it's, there's it's only so old, many licensed Pletna if captains. If I'm not mistaken, there's 22 of them at the moment. Okay. And it's a what we call a house right. So it's given to a house address. Mm-hmm. You simply cannot have a boat on the lake. Not You're not able to have a Pletna boat on the lake if you don't belong to that household. And I had to negotiate with those guys, with my TV crew when we were there, because, you know, they they know the TV crew wants to get the Pletna boat mm-hmm. going out to the island mm-hmm. where the church. I wonder how the negotiation was. Well, they seem to be quite tough. They're tough. They're tough. They know how to negotiate. <laughs> but she got to do it, and they know that. Yeah. And, and uh, Tina, when you get to the island, there's a famous tradition for people who are married, newly married. Well, just before they get married, the groom, the future groom, needs to carry the bride up 99 stairs. They believe if they are successful with carrying the wife up, the marriage will be done well. If not, it's better to run away when you still have time. <laughs> when you still have time. Yeah. And when you get to that church on top of the yeah. little hill on the island. And of course you have to go in. It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful and scene. And you ring the bell of wishes as well, which brings luck in love, and it brings also children. So there's a rope hanging through the ceiling. Yes. And you can pull that yes. for, for luck and for children. If you're not getting married, you can walk around the lake. That's a nice hike. Yeah, it's a nice hike. Locals, we still do it almost three, four times a week. About and 14 takes, kilometers or something? No, it's Ten, only six, about only six, six, six kilometers. kilometers okay, and so it takes about an hour miles. for locals. And oh. it takes about two to tourists because they take pictures. We don't anymore. That's right. And you find a little <laughs> resort. There's kind of a resort on the lake. Yeah. My memory of the resort is everybody sitting there enjoying the view, eating your famous cream cake. Oh, the cream schnitta. Of course, yeah. you have to eat the cream cake. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. The cream cake. That goes back to, like, Grandma's favorite mm, dessert or that something. That one actually goes back to Tito's days. Tito's days. Um, right. And he was the one who introduced it because he wanted to serve it to the people who came on an official visit. He didn't want to repeat after the Brits. Tito was the, yeah. like, famously the... The most Yugoslavian person, the one yes. person that could rive above all the little differences in this country of eight or ten ethnic regions yes. together. And uh, he, uh, the communist mm-hmm. ruler that really brought Yugoslavia together, he has a, a former mansion on the lake, so he must have enjoyed Lake Bled. He really enjoyed it because he was an avid hunter, so there's a lot of forests all around, and he always came just because he enjoyed also being in the company of many Slovenians. He liked to brag a little bit about how well he's doing, with the beauty of Lake Blade, it was just a common place to bring his visitors over there and see. Did say. he like Slovenians? He really liked Slovenians, yeah. Why, because why would he like um, Slovenians? I would say of all the former republics that yeah. were belonging to Yugoslavia, right. we were the ones who were very much in character, like Germanic, very hardworking, okay. very punctual, and he liked that. So that was a self-respecting yes. Yugoslav, yes. was the Slovenian. Because you were more Germanic, you're, yeah, you're the we're, north. We're really, and we... Many people who come to Slovenia say, oh my God, this is like Germany, Austria, or Switzerland. Like, to me, you're like Austria, but yep. speaking a Slavic language yes. and no Mozart. Yeah. 
That's right. I think we're a bit more chill than the Austrians, but... Okay, we yeah. can talk about that. <laughs> There's a little bit of rivalry over there. <laughs> okay, well, you know, Salzburg and Ljubljana are, are just, to me, like sister cities. Yes. And they're quite easy to visit from each yeah. other. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about nature in Slovenia, and we're joined by tour guides Tina Hiti and Sasho Gulu. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Martina's calling in from Atlanta. Martina, thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. I'm so glad to speak with you. I uh, spoke with Tina, actually, before my uh, trip to Slovenia, I guess about a year ago, and we talked about driving into the Julian Alps. I love the mountains. It didn't go as planned, but um, something else really fun happened. Um, I heard you speak about uh, Lake Bohin, and of course, we saw Lake Bled, but we sort of stumbled upon Lake Bohin, and I loved it because it didn't feel as touristy as Lake Bled. Lake Bled was great. We did the boats. We hung out at a um, dock and swam, but it was really, really crowded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lake Bohin was not. It was just it felt unspoiled. We were on a beach um rocky beach and maybe there were um five or six uh groups picnicking but it was mm-hmm. i really felt like it was ours to explore and we also stumbled upon a cable car i always like getting up high this cable car vogel cable car it was called took us way up to the top of the mountain and again just gorgeous views we hung around up at the top and then just hiked down and i mean it was really unexpected and so beautiful you know uh, martina just so our listeners know for sure we're talking about lake bohin and that's b-o-h-i-n-j is that right tina yes, that's correct bohin and uh, there's two famous lakes lake bled B-L-E-D, the past tense of bleed, and that would be where all the tourists are. (laughs) And then Lake Bohin, it feels to me like a national park where there's very little commerce. It's Mm -hmm. just hikers and people enjoying the the natural setting. And it sounds like, Martina, you enjoyed uh, just hanging out at the lake. I really, really did. It was just pristine and, as you say, not as as tourists did as Lake Bled. Although Lake Bled... Marks. I mean, you got to. Oh yeah, see you got to see that. But I, I think you're right. Lake Bohin kind of caps it off. Thanks for your call, Martina. Sure. Bye. Bye. We're looking at natural attractions of Slovenia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Tina Hiti and Sasho Gulub. They're based in the Lake Bled region of the country in the foothills of the Alps. That's where there's a thousand-year-old castle hanging off a cliff and a Baroque church on a little island that's a favorite for taking wedding photographs. Sasho and Tina's website is pg-slovenia.com, where PG stands for Private Guide. Tina, when we think about nature, I just always think of, uh, of people in Slavic Europe enjoying hiking and picking wildflowers and harvesting mushrooms and uh, yeah. you know, mountain herbs. What, what might you find in Slovenia that way? Yeah, if you're going to Slovenia, it depends a little bit on what season, what month of the year you're coming so early spring, you start picking up the flowers. This is what locals do all the time. And we dry them and we use them for teas. And usually that procedure goes from about early April till the end of July. That's for the mountain flowers. Then usually all of September, it's the mushroom picking season. Ah. And this is something that it's 
It's just insane if you don't know about it because there's family members that are actually competing among each other, how many porcini mushrooms they took from the forests. We don't have real limits yet, but it's an incredible experience, you know, when you go and walk through the forest and then... A so this is really, a family excursion. You go it's with the a fa- kids. Yeah, we go, you... with, with, we go, all of us, my mom, my dad, the boys, us too. Mm-hmm. And we all just spread around the forest and then we kind of compete who picks up the most. Oh, that's fun. And there's, it's like we did blackberry picking yeah. with my family, but we never did mushroom And picking. there's no better thing than you see that head of a porcini stick out of the leaves. It's just such a nice feeling when you see it. You would just scream out your lungs and say, I got it, I got it. Describe that more. Are, are you in a forest? What do you um, see? We're, we're in the forest. So, you know, porcinis are brownish. Yeah. So they are like the leaves. Oh, and yeah. it's so very hard to see them. They are almost, very camouflaged. It's so like it's, a game for children. It's like a treasure hunt almost. Yeah. And they grow deep by the roots, but still the little head is sticking out. So if you have good eyes, you see it. Usually you bring in a little stick because it's easier to kind of uncover the leaves around. And it's also very important to know what is a good and what is a bad mushroom? Because if you don't know what you're picking, you can literally kill somebody because you can poison them. So you have to be careful with your children. You yeah. absolutely have to be careful. Yeah. They, they always ask, is this the right one? They, they went, they, got, they found it, they're happy. Yeah, the kids and but yeah. then they always ask, just yeah. in case. Yeah. Just in case. <laughs> what are your memories of mushrooms and herbs um, and mountain flowers? Well, I have very limited memory about finding mushrooms because I rarely find any. My boys are way more successful at it. Uh, with herbs, um, Tina is the expert, so I just pick whatever she tells me to pick because it's, it's a science on its own as well. You know, you have to know what to pick and when to pick it. Um, I mean, it's being out, being out with the family, really being out with is. the friends. Yeah. yeah, And then, you know, you bring a little something home, which is then a memory of a nice walk in the forest yeah, in the so winter the when you have that cup of tea. The to be out Absolutely. in the forest yeah. with your yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if you're in the Julian Alps, Martina, who called earlier, mm-hmm. was talking about the Julian Alps, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. stumble on a lot of World War I history up there. The, is the Socha... The Socha front was in the Julian Alps. Explain yeah. what, what was the Socha front. So the Socha front is a conflict between Italy and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The goal of Italy is to conquer Slovenia, conquer Vienna. But because of their way of command, they got stuck high up in Slovenian Alps. So it's still considered as one of the biggest mountain battles in human history. Uh, we have Ernest Hemingway writing a Farewell to Arms about oh, that So a region. Farewell to Arms by Hemingway was set on the Socha Front? Yes, yes. He was an ambulance driver. He was an ambulance driver for the Italian military. Oh, okay. He was wounded. Uh, but the, it is set in our area. Some but of the villages that still exist. It's hard to imagine that in World War One, we're talking 1916 or something, mm-hmm. you've got people up on top of the mountain yes. living in the snow, living. in the rocks, yes. way up yeah. there. It's like you had the Western Front where they dug trenches. Here you've got Desperate rocks. people parked out on rocks on yeah. top of mountains yeah. in desperate cold. Well, the highest the highest peak that they were fighting on is two thousand two hundred and forty four meters above sea level. So that would be two thousand two hundred and that'd be yeah. what seven thousand feet. 7, a little over seven thousand yeah. feet. Seven thousand yeah. feet, and it's plenty high. Nine meters of snow in the winter. Nineteen sixteen is still considered as the worst winter regarding the amount of snow we got in recorded history. So it was. And finally, when you're in Slovenia, there is a lot of mountains, but there's also a lot of caves. Mm-hmm. What what might you see in caves, Tina, when you're in Slovenia? Yeah, we say that in our Karst region... Karst, K-A-R-S-T. K-A-R-S-T, yes. Our Karst region is so rich with underground world that you see more under the ground than up the ground. There's over 10,000 caves. You can see stalagmites, stalactites. Stalagmites are those that go from the ground and stalactites from the... 
from the ceiling. Right. When they join together, it's a column. Uh-huh. And they are just wonderful. They are beautiful. And these are massive caves. Massive I've, I've caves. I've been in caves in Slovenia that are like, yeah. like they're as big as a stadium. Yes. And you've got these rivers way down below, and yes. you've got these little walkways way above. Yes. And in the distance, you see... Uh, a portal and the light is pouring in. Yes, and you feel like you're in, in some, you're you're a, a bit player in some sci-fi movie. Yeah, it, it almost feels like that. And then when you see some of the animals that live in those caves, like the human fish, yeah. which is considered as the little dragon, um, the human fish, human fish, yeah. I've never heard it's of a human fish. <laughs> makes me a little bit nervous. It's a human fish because of the color of the skin. Oh, okay. And it has like legs and arms sticking out of the body, but it's like a gecko. Okay. And he's a, cre- a creature and of creature the cave. that lives inside of the cave. And uh, above all of that uh, honeycombed uh, subterrain, mm-hmm. you've got vineyards and some very trendy wine. Oh, we do have some really good wine in our country. There's a lot to see in Slovenia. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tina Hiti and Sasho Gulub. Let's finish our discussion of natural Slovenia just with one special natural experience that you'd think anybody planning a trip to your homeland would want to be sure to enjoy. I'm going to say a hike in the Julian Alps for people who are fit, willing mm-hmm. to invest a certain amount of their time into just this phenomenal views of the hills. I would say a hike in the Julian Alps. Julian Alps. Yep. And Tina. And I would probably choose, well, same as Sasha, Julian Alps, but since I want to go into another zone. Goriška Brda area is amazing. That's very close to Karst, and it's an area that has rolling hills, looks like Tuscany, beautiful nature, amazing food, and amazing wine. Now let's make sure people know Goriška Brda. G-O-R-I-S-K-A, and then B-R-D-A. Now, I was taught you have to have a a vowel, and this is (laughs) B-R-D-A, and it's two syllables. Where's the vowel? We we tend to be a little lazy with those. (laughs) (laughs) Berda, B-R-D-A, Goriska Berda, and it's it's just a a beautiful, it's also another wine-growing region. It's a wine-growing region. It's a beekeeping region. It's just, it's beautiful. You got everything you're looking for. Mushrooms? Um, yeah, yeah, not so much okay, over there. You got there. your bees, yeah. and you got your wine, yeah. and you got your beautiful Slovenian countryside. Uh, can we finish just with, teach me a, a, a phrase or a Slovenian word that I should know when I'm hiking in those mountains, uh, um, You have always, absolutely always have to greet people on the trails. Uh-huh. So I would say Dobr dan, Dobr which dan. Means good afternoon Dobr would dan. be a phrase Dobr. to remember. Good day, good yep. afternoon, good Dobr afternoon. dan. Yep. And Tina? And when you, you will be resting in an alpine hut, you'll probably have some schnapps. You need to know how to say cheers. Na zdravje. Ah, I like that. Na zdravje. Na zdravje. Is that the same in Russian? Similar, yes. Similar. Yeah. Na zdravje. Yes. And don't forget to look into people's eyes when you toast with them. Because can, I make it, can I make it a little bit um, yeah. melodramatic? Can I go, na zdravje? You can, yeah. Is that yeah. okay? No or does problem. That, that's not insulting. That's na just zdravje. Na zdravje. glasses and look into people's eyes because they will be offended if you don't. And you'll need to pay for the next round of drinks. Na zdravje. Dobre <laughs> dan. Good. Thank you for Thank coming you, us. Rick. Slovenia, najlepi pisem poje, ne išči sreče drugot, kot le doma. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Kaz Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikon. We get affiliate support from Sheila Gerzog. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had help this week from the BBC in London. 
We had editing help this week from Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.